You're listening to Central Time. I'm Shereen Seward in for Rob Ferret. Now, in 2022, Wisconsin saw a record-setting increase in domestic violence-related suicides and homicides, with an increase of 20 percent compared to the previous year. That's according to a report from End Domestic Abuse Wisconsin. We'll talk with a domestic violence and policy researcher about why Wisconsin's problem with domestic violence is getting worse and what we can do to improve. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you work with victims of domestic violence? Do you know how to spot the signs? Do you know of any local or national resources for victims? If you have some words of support for people experiencing domestic violence, call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page or email us at ideas at WPR.org. Marielle Barnes is an assistant professor at the La Follette School of Public Affairs at UW-Madison. Marielle, welcome to Central Time. Thank you for having me. When we talk about domestic violence-related deaths, what does that include? So it captures a number of different things. So it will capture deaths that occurred between victims and perpetrators who were partners or spouses or former partners or spouses. It also captures um, adults who had children in common, and there was a domestic violence situation there. Um, Sometimes it will also capture a child's death that's uh, happened in the context of a domestic violence situation, or even uh, death that's occurred between an adult child and uh, a parent or a grandparent. So it's a range of, of, uh, of deaths that we're talking about. Why do you think that domestic violence-related deaths spiked last year. What played into that? Mm -hmm. I think there's a number of different factors that have played into this. So the first one is uh, the prevalence of firearms, most definitely. So firearms were the most common weapon used in these domestic violence homicides. Um, Almost 90% of these deaths involved a firearm. And so that definitely exacerbates things. The other big reason that this is happening, I think, is because there's uh, decreasing support for victims of violence and sexual violence. Um, A lot of Wisconsin organizations are facing significant cuts to the point where where when I'm talking to different domestic violence organizations, they're saying that they're going to have to um, close their shelters or uh, they can't afford to like have their hotlines open 24 seven, which is really important. Um, And then the third reason I would say is that there's really a shortage of affordable housing right now in Wisconsin. And that makes it very difficult for victims of violence to leave situations and find somewhere to live away from that violence and away from that abuse. You mentioned the funding piece. And Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious about that, Marielle. Is that a is that a local, a, a county, a state, or a federal funding issue? Is it a combination of factors? Where where is the money going, uh, going away? Yeah. So, a lot of the funding is come, or sorry, a lot of organizations get funding from um, what we call VOCA, which is the violence um, legislation. And so that is actually decreasing 70%. So Wisconsin will see a 70% cut in federal funding to domestic violence and sexual assault services. Um, This year or this coming year, they're anticipating getting $13.5 million in funding. 
but last year it was 44.5. So that's a significant cut. Um, and that's a lot of organizations fund a lot of services from that money. I have to say that among other U.S. states, Wisconsin sits in the middle of the rankings for for rates of domestic violence. So why is our death rate so high? Mm-hmm. Um, again, I think it's the the prevalence of firearms um, and it's the, the affordable housing issue. That's a huge problem. Uh, to put this in perspective, uh, in the same period last year, Minnesota only had 24 people die as a result of domestic violence. Um, and I would say that those two states are fairly comparable, right? We're mm-hmm. both Midwestern states, both Northern, um, but first, like Wisconsin is much, much worse. Hmm. Um, well, let's delve into that a little bit. Are there any restrictions in Wisconsin on gun ownership for people convicted of a domestic violence related crime right now? Um, I'm not a hundred percent on that. Uh, there is a case going up to the Supreme Court right now about whether people who have been convicted of domestic violence can own a firearm. I can tell you that research shows that uh, domestic violence homicides decrease 7% in states that actually do pass laws that confiscate firearms from individuals who have a restraining order. Um, but that's not in Wisconsin as far as I am aware. Marielle Barnes is with us today to discuss the increase in domestic violence-related deaths in Wisconsin, and there's plenty of time for your calls and thoughts on this difficult issue. 800-642-1234. Wisconsin Carey, which is a Second Amendment rights advocacy group, suggested that the state should allow people who are awarded a restraining order to be able to get that temporary concealed carry permit. Do you think that would mitigate the number of domestic violence-related deaths in the state? What impact would that have? I don't think it would mitigate it. I think it would make it um, more prevalent. Um, The risk of death goes up five times when a firearm is in the household. It's just so much easier when people are angry and when emotions are high to commit an action that you, you know, would not without having that firearm present. Um, So I think having the firearm in the household and having concealed carry laws would increase uh, deaths related so, to domestic violence. So you think it would be, it would have the opposite effect from yes. from what they intend. Mm-hmm. You also talked about affordable housing and boy, this is in the headlines all over the place. No matter what community you're mm-hmm. in, you hear about the housing affordability crisis, not enough housing, not enough affordable housing. Talk a little bit about the connection there. What What's the connection between affordable housing and domestic violence deaths? Mm-hmm. So when you're in a situation of domestic violence, obviously you need somewhere to go. And usually that can be a domestic violence shelter. It can be family or friends. Um, it can be like all like alternative people that you know, but ultimately like you cannot leave that situation unless you have a permanent place to live and a safe place to live. Um, and what we're seeing is that rents are, are extremely high right now. Um, interest rates are very, very high and it makes it hard to buy a home. And there's just a lack of affordable housing stock. So if you have no long-term solution about where you're going to stay, like you might not leave the situation that you're currently in because you just don't know where you're going to live um, or you don't know where your kids are 
you know, you can put a, a roof over your kid's head and where they're going to go to school and that kind of thing. Um, and this is occurring in both rural areas that have a shortage of housing stock, but it's also in urban areas. So in Madison and Milwaukee that really need extra or need more housing in general. Um, and also it's affordable, but also quality housing, right? So it's houses that are safe and secure um, for people to, to live in, essentially. Well, we've talked about affordable housing, and we've talked about the funding gap, and we've talked about gun policy. Aside from those things, uh, and I know that's a lot, but what can be done to reduce the number of domestic violence-related deaths in Wisconsin? What other solutions might be out there that you and other advocates uh, and, and advocates are looking at as potential game changers? Mm -hmm. So obviously, controlling firearms or restricting firearms to people who are responsible with them and don't have domestic violence um, convictions, mm -hmm. um, more ho affordable housing, but also, I guess, raising awareness is really, really important. So a lot of people who are experiencing uh, domestic abuse and domestic violence often don't realize that they're experiencing that. Um, we often think of domestic violence as physical or sexual violence against people, but there's a whole range of other things that it can include. So it can include financial abuse, so maybe your partner is opening up credit cards in your name and running up debt. So you can't, uh, you don't have a good credit score. And when people do a credit background check on you, you can't get a house, right? Mm -hmm. Or your landlord doesn't want to rent to you. Um, or maybe they are controlling how much money you have every week. Um, it's also people being you know, domestic violence also includes like stalking. So I have talked to victims who have said that their partners send them flowers as an apology and people say, oh, that's very nice of them. But what the victims actually want is no contact at all. And so realizing that all of these different forms of violence exist um, and realizing when you are in a relationship like that and recognizing those kind of red flags are really, really important, I think, for getting people out of those relationships. I've heard from survivors of domestic violence that getting a restraining order is kind of an arduous process. I was a little surprised by that. Uh, what they have to go through to get a to get a restraining order. Sometimes there's uh, you know costs involved. Is that something? Is that process something that could be streamlined? Would that help? And do restraining orders help at all? Mm -hmm. Um. I definitely think the process is more onerous than it has to be. It is improving, particularly as awareness through the judiciary of domestic violence and what domestic violence includes improves. Um, I definitely think we could do more, though, to make that an easier process. Um, in terms of whether restraining orders help, the results are mixed on that. Um, if someone, if an abuser is very, very motivated, it can be very difficult to dissuade them, is what I will say. Um, but also a restraining order or an order of protection means they cannot approach you. So there is, if you do, if your abuser does approach you, there are legal recourses to breaking that order. We're talking with Marielle Barnes, assistant professor at the La Follette School of Public Affairs at UW-Madison about why domestic violence-related deaths are becoming more frequent in Wisconsin. And we want to hear from you at 800-642-1234. If you're willing to share, 
Have you or someone you know escaped a domestic violence situation? What helped you leave? And what kind of support systems were there for you? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email us at ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Shereen Seward in for Rob Ferrett. Right now we're picking up our conversation with Mario Barnes, Assistant Professor at the La Follette School of Public Affairs at UW-Madison. We are talking about the spike in domestic violence-related deaths we've seen in Wisconsin over the last year and what we can do to prevent them. We want to hear what you think. 800-642-1234. Do you have ideas for protections you think that would help for survivors of domestic abuse. What restrictions do you think we should place on perpetrators? Call 800-642-1234, 800-642-1234, or email us at ideas at wpr.org. Marielle, what are some of the signs of a potentially abusive partner that people should be watching for? Mm -hmm. There's a number of different signs that you can think about. Um, So the first one is obviously any kind of threat that someone would make against you. So if someone says like they're going to kill you, you would you should take that very seriously. Um, another sign is if you've ever been strangled by a partner before. Um, we know that the odds of a homicide or dying at the hands of a partner increase sevenfold if you've previously been strangled. Um, and oftentimes when that happens, um, the the consequences of having someone's hands around your throat, which is a particularly sensitive area, don't emerge potentially for days. And so that's something when I hear someone has been strangled, I'm always very um, concerned about them. And I always recommend that they go to see a doctor um, to be checked out and let the doctor know what is going on because they can refer you to services. Um, other things, so oftentimes, Uh, Abusers will love bomb people is what we call it. What does that mean? Love bomb. I don't think I've heard that before. Mm -hmm. That means where they're very um, attentive to you. They will provide, you know, they will give you presents. They will be on their best behavior. And then that's often, that often goes on for a period of days or a couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden, you know, they will be, uh, violent or abusive or harassing you. And then all of a sudden, once they realize what they've done, they're very apologetic. They go back to be a very, being a very loving and caring kind of partner. But that loving and caringness does not outweigh the uh, violence and abusive uh, that they commit against people. Um, so that would be something if you think they're in this kind of cycle of like, uh, abuse and violence and then love, like those two things are not balancing each other out. Mm-hmm. That can p- potentially be an abusive rela- relationship as well. We have Michelle with us now from Mequon. Michelle, hi. Hi. <laughs> so uh, my my 10 years stint, or should I say saga, was um, I used to go to group and it was a little bit too quiet when I told my story, so I kind of felt ashamed. Um, I was in a 10-year relationship that at the very end, 
before we went to court in like 2016, he tried to strangle me and I had a list of things for the restraining order. And we went to court and he openly um, admitted in court that he tried to strangle me, but I could not use it against him because that was 2016 ago, as it reads in the transcript. I feel there should be some kind of tougher laws because I was blatantly told that basically, even though he said that under oath, I would not be able to probably make anything stick. Mm -hmm. And I kind of gave up on the idea of making it stick, but the judge did offer me, in all fairness, a 10-year restraining order. He said, would you like a four or a 10-year restraining order? So but, so you got the you got the restraining order, but you feel like there just weren't weren't any real punishments for your partner then i mean in you know i feel like he's suffering because he's not he's just not um he had a social worker so then he wouldn't he wasn't able to see his kids either okay michelle thank you for for sharing that with us i i appreciate the call what do you think about that mariel i mean do punishments need to be stronger would that help um, potentially. So one of the things I often hear from victims is, you know, I wish my partner, I knew where my partner was. Um, and I've had a number of different victims say like, if they're in jail, I know where they are and that makes me feel safe. But on the other hand, um, we have to also think about kind of the carceral justice, justice system and how that works. Um, and so it's, really difficult to balance like different concerns here. Um, I do hear a lot from victims that they often don't feel believed by the justice system as well. And they feel like um, they feel shame and they feel like they go through that process and then nothing comes of it. And so that we can definitely improve that I think a lot. We have Maddie with us now. Maddie is calling from South Central Wisconsin. Maddie, thanks for calling. Hi. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to speak to some of the frustrations I've had myself within this process um, in Madison. So um, when you file a restraint, and I'm sorry, I didn't hear the last person, so I'm not sure if I'm repeating anything, but um, when you file a restraining order, you actually have to go to court with the person i mean they said typically they don't show up oh yeah and you have to face them right there mm -hmm. yes this person i thought would show up which was scary but i was willing to still do it um and i so i said make sure you call me because i'm in the process of moving and etc they assured me they would call me about the court date and then the, instead they emailed me like 36 hours ahead of time. Okay. And so I missed it. And um, then you have to start all back over. And it really is, it's, it's like a horribly traumatic experience because you have to rewrite everything that happened while you're actually like, it's just, it's um, a lot, a lot of stress and it is a lot of strings. Yeah. To, pull, to even make it happen in the first place. And I just don't understand why sure. you have to argue against somebody else 
in court, and they were like, and then you might be up for defamation. Okay, you know, and Maddie, thank you so much for calling. Marielle, when we hear Maddie talk about her experience and that frustration, is that something that's very common, that, um, that, that knowing that you have to go to court and, and face the person who is your abuser, how, how, de- how deterring is that? for victims. That's very deterring. Um, And that's super common that we hear in that the burden is placed on the victim to prove that they have been a victim of domestic violence. Um, And it's, they have to jump through hoops all the time. And as Maddie was saying, like, you know, if you miss a step or you miss a date, you have to restart the whole process again, um, which is a problem. And facing your abuser is not an easy task. Um, I've heard stories of like abusers, like tapping a lighter on the table and like you would fiddle with a pen kind of thing. And it seems like a very innocuous gesture until you find out that that particular abuser had threatened to douse their partner in gasoline and light them on fire. And so Facing your abuser, even in a court, is very, very intimidating, and we do not make it easy for people to do that and to seek recourse and to seek protect orders of protection and things like that. In our final 30, 45 seconds, uh, how might listeners get involved in helping survivors of domestic abuse? Mm-hmm. So there's always organizations throughout Wisconsin that are providing support, um, domestic violence organizations. Um Many of them ask, like, ask for volunteers to help out. A lot of them um, have regular fundraising efforts to provide help to survivors, so they can provide uh, the, so they can keep the hotline open, the shelter open, so they can help survivors get into housing or buy a car okay. or pay for moving expenses. So I would definitely encourage people to look at their local organizations and. Re- Mario, thank you so much for joining us today, Assistant Professor in the La Follette School of Public Affairs at UW-Madison. Appreciate you being with us. Throughout the U.S., national holidays are important, each one with its own significance and customs. But there are quite a few lesser-known national days that are celebrated throughout the year that you might find surprising. At least I did when I stumbled upon a National What Day website. Today, for example, is International Artist Day. It is Lung Health Day, National Cartoonists Against Crime Day. It's National Greasy Foods Day. Yay! Punk for a Day Day, World Pizza Makers Day, and I Care About You Day. I have no idea who came up with these wacky holidays, but there you have it. It might sound silly, but marketing schemes aside, in a world where the headlines are so often filled with painful stories, appreciating the small things that make life meaningful is good enough for me. This is Central Time.
You're listening to Central Time. I'm Shereen Seward in for Rob Barrett. Coming up, a look at the Google antitrust lawsuit and the company's monopoly on Internet searches. Right now, it's time for Wisconsin Life. Here's producer Maureen McCollum remembering a horror and sci-fi filmmaker who passed away at age 100 this year. Kenosha native and monster movie director Bert I. Gordon brought the world the legendary likes of The Amazing Colossal Man and Attack of the Puppet People. He worked with Orson Welles and dozens of other stars in a sci-fi and horror film career that stretched seven decades. Andy Turner looks back on the life and career of the man they called Mr. Big. Everything's going to be all right. I know it is. The doctors are working night and day to find a cure. They feel that if they can stop your growth, they may be able to bring you back to normal. You don't really believe that. They'll never find a cure for me. Decades before director Burt I. Gordon created the cult classic Amazing Colossal Man, he was spending his youth in Kenosha movie theaters watching the latest horror, gangster, and western flicks. But watching just wasn't enough. In his 2009 autobiography, he wrote about becoming acquainted with theater employees who showed him how to work the projector and splice film. He even befriended the vaudeville stars that one theater booked, learning about their life and secrets. Gordon ended up at the University of Wisconsin, where he made campus newsreels that ran in Madison's downtown theaters. From UW, he moved on to the Army Air Corps, followed by jobs making commercials and documentaries. But with the love of movies and oddities still pounding in his heart and head, he decided he would try his luck in Hollywood. Many of the mysteries of this vast ocean of space would soon be solved. It would be a race between countries to see which one would be the first the first to bring our civilization to another planet in space. Gordon stayed busy in the 1950s and 60s, cranking out creature features of all sorts, like King Dinosaur. Most of his movies featured unnaturally giant beast, hence his nickname, Mr. Big, also his initials. For daughter Patricia Gordon, her father's tenacity, personal touches, and especially his dedication to being a filmmaker or worthy of admiration. Gordon frequently wrote, edited, orchestrated special effects, and more on his movies. Like in 1958's Attack of the Puppet People. But the loss of love has made this mild-mannered man into a maniac. A maniac who wants to make you a plaything. And the fear awesome fact is, he knows how to do it. The thing about Attack of the Puppet People, and I would cry every time I'd see it. Spoiler alert, at the end when Franz says, don't leave me, I'll be alone. It reminded me of my dad, because he, he hated being alone. The opening credits from Puppet People depict Gordon's real family as marionettes. Marionettes from the movie would remain around the family home for years. In 1972, Burt Gordon connected with another famous filmmaker from Kenosha, Orson Welles. Welles starred in Gordon's necromancy as Mr. Cato, the head of a witch's coven. Enter the occult world of necromancy. You were brought here for one purpose, necromancy. A ceremony dating back to the pre-Christian era. It's the art of reviving the dead. It requires involvement with evil spirits. A photograph from the set shows them smiling at each other. Patricia says it was a highlight of her father's career. Her father was good at handling famous people, she says, and had no problems with the famously individualistic actor and director. Patricia says her dad was always proud 
of being from Kenosha. Otherwise, I wouldn't have even heard of, of Kenosha, and um, it, uh, it shaped him as a, um, a man, you know. She has been touched by the attention her father's death received and the love from fans. I appreciate every single fan and every single person who, who liked even one minute of his films because that's what he did it for. He did it for the audience and himself, I and mean, he loved making it. Andy Turner brought us that story on movie director Bert I. Gordon. Wisconsin Life is a co-production of Wisconsin Public Radio and PBS Wisconsin in partnership with Wisconsin Humanities. Additional support comes from Lowell and Mary Peterson of Appleton. I'm Maureen McCollum. Now, an antitrust lawsuit against Google has gone to trial after three years. The Justice Department and 38 states and territories are alleging that Google has violated antitrust law by excluding potential competitors, thus illegally gaining a monopoly on the search engine industry. Google owns more than 90 percent of the search market and permeates every part of the Internet. Google says the monopoly is due to the superiority of its product. But the Justice Department says it's because Google has illegally excluded its competitors through multi-billion dollar deals with other tech companies, most notably Apple. Google's monopoly on search isn't just a legal issue, though. Many tech industry experts have argued that Google's massive size has deteriorated the quality of its search engine over the years, prompting a, a decline in the overall user experience. We're talking about Google's monopoly on search and what happens when a company becomes so large that it virtually has no competition. And we want to hear from you at 800-642-1234. Do you feel like the quality of Google search has declined over the years? What has changed for you? And do you think Google has reached its monopoly status unfairly? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email us at ideas at wpr.org. Cory Doctorow is a science fiction author, activist, and journalist who's covered the tech industry for many years. His latest book is The Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation. And his next book, The Lost Cause, will be out November 14th. Cory, welcome to Central Time. Thank you very much. What a pleasure to be on. Give us an overview of the antitrust suit against Google. What exactly is the Justice Department alleging? Well, they're arguing that um, Google engaged in uh, anti-competitive conduct, including uh, buying default status on uh, all the various uh, services where you might go to make a search, whether that's your iPhone or a Samsung phone or, or other devices or, or services, and that uh, they did that not because they had the best service and they wanted to make sure that you uh, didn't get disappointed by trying something that might be better, but because they really wanted to be sure that no one would fund uh, a, a search engine that might be better than theirs. And if they did, that that superior search engine would um, uh, not find any purchase in the market. And then, you know, they're alleging further that once they attain this dominance, once they knew that searchers couldn't go anywhere else and that advertisers really had only one game for search advertising, which is uh, evident, the evidence points to that being the best kind of advertising in terms of uh, getting people to, to click on something and, and buy something or do something, that um, w once they once they had that market, they, they made things worse for advertisers and end users, uh, degrading quality. So we were all left with worse service, uh, that was more expensive, um, and that did us worse. So what is Google's defense? What are they saying? Oh, well, Google just says we're the best, right? Um, they say we're the best, and um, 
you know, the, if you find that the web is not as good as it used to be, that's your problem and not ours. Um, you know, and maybe there's a little implication from Google that, uh, you know, if, they, if there's more junky results in Google that have somehow gamed its algorithm to get to those top listings, that it's because everybody searches a Google because they know they're the best. And so if you're a spammer, you're going to spend all your time trying to figure out how to break Google. But when they do, when that happens, Google figures it out and they fix it. Um, and, and I think that um, the problem with this is that there's not really a, a counterfactual. We don't have a another search engine that Google allowed to take hold that we could compare it to to see whether the problems Google's having producing good, reliable search results are because it's uh, lazy and um, uh, doesn't have the discipline of competition or because it's just, you know, gotten much harder because the bad guys really have it in for good results. I'm curious what you make of Google's argument in court that smart people, smart employees, rather than expensive deals, are really responsible for the company's success. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> it's funny because you can maybe look at how they spend their money to figure out where their priorities are and what they believe about about those employees. So, you know, Google fired 12,000 employees last year after doing a stock buyback that would have paid those wages for 27 years. They were caught in a, a criminal wage fixing conspiracy with the other big tech companies to stop employees from bidding up their wages by switching companies. And, and so they did this illegal no poach agreement. And meanwhile, it, it's pretty clear that they're spending, you know, multiple Twitters every couple of years on on keeping default search position. It, it looks like the actual figure for the um, Google Apple deal every year, which is the deal to make Google the default search engine on iOS and Safari, is about a $19 billion a year deal. It's the, the biggest deal that either company does. The largest expenditure Google makes, the largest source of income uh, from any one source that Apple has. Uh, and so, you know, it, 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 it's, it would be pretty weird if they were spending $19 billion on default position and firing 12,000 employees, but they blamed their success on employees and not being the default. We're talking about the antitrust case against Google with tech industry expert Cory Doctorow, and we want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. Do you use Google search or do you avoid it? If so, what search engine do you use? And have you found it difficult to completely avoid using Google at all? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email us at ideas at wpr.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up next on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Shereen Seward in for Rob Ferret. We're talking about the antitrust case against Google and how monopoly affects the quality of a product. Our guest is tech industry expert Corey Doctorow, and you can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you think the quality of companies decline when they become as big as Google is? And how do you think a monopoly affects the quality of a company's products? Call 800-642-1234 or email us at ideas at wpr.org. We have Crash with us calling now from Milwaukee. Hi, Crash. Hey, how are you? Great. Thanks for calling. I w I'm happy to. I was thrilled to hear the subject when I got in my van this morning. Um, I personally, I don't know what the ins and outs are of the advertisement deal, but as a Google user, and I'm 46 years old, so I've used Google since the beginning, I find the quality of the search has gone down exponentially used to be able that I could put in kind of a vague phrase and with just a couple of clicks, I could get exactly what I was looking for. Now it seems to take me 
hither, thither, and yon, and doesn't seem to be able to find what I'm looking for at all. And when I do find what I'm looking for, it's usually after a whole page or at least a half a page of either ads or sponsored hits. Well, what do you, you know what, I'm curious what you can say about that, Corey, because is that what you're hearing from other people? Is, is Crash's experience typical? Yeah, I think that's that's a, a widespread perception that not only um, are the organic search results to actual web pages that Google guesses would be a good uh, match for your query, not as good as they used to be, but they're further down on the page and harder to find. And they've been crowded out by what Google calls like its knowledge box, which is where it's extracting some text from a random web page and sticking it up there to try and answer your query. There's a, a bit of viral stuff going around right now where if you type uh, what countries in Africa begin with a K, this this junk text that may or may not have been generated by an AI comes up as a, in a little box that says uh, no countries in Africa begin with a K. The closest is Kenya, which, although it sounds like it begins with a K, actually begins with a K. So just, you know, errant nonsense. So, you know, on the one hand, the results aren't as good. And in the second hand, on the other hand, they're, they're harder to get to because they've been crowded out by even worse results. Um, uh, ads, including ads to scam websites and so on. It's a bit of a, the food here is terrible and the portions are so small problem. Uh, you know, notoriously this summer, uh, Google's knowledge box for airline phone numbers. So if you typed in the name of an airline and uh, phone number, like American airline phone number, uh, all of those listings got hacked and Google just started serving uh, 800 numbers that went to a boiler room where uh, con artists would take your credit card and clean you out. I actually got rooked by one of these. Uh, I, I had a friend over and um, we were going to order some Thai food and watch a movie. And so I went on my phone and tried to order some Thai food from our local place. And I clicked the top link after typing their name into Google and placed my order. And 10 minutes later, the restaurant called me up and said, you've been scammed. That's someone who copied our website, raised our prices by 15%, bought the ad for our name on Google. And when people click it and order, they take your money, they place the order with us, and then you come and get it and, and you think and you just think that we're price gouging you. You don't even realize you've been rooked. Uh, we're gonna cancel your order. You can you can just come and pick it up and pay for it uh, in, in the store, which is what I ended up doing. And you know, the amazing thing about this is that Google actually knows which is the real merchant because Google has this verified merchant program mm -hmm. where they if you sign up and say, Hi, I'm you know, your local Thai restaurant with Google. Google checks and then mails a postcard to the address that you are supposed to be located at with a number on it. And then you have to type that number into the web to verify that you're really at that address. So Google could or should have known mm -hmm. that that um, ad was for a scam site, but they took the money uh, uh, anyway, either because they wanted the scam revenue, which I don't think is the case. I think it's more the case that if they devoted the energy that it would take to making sure that there were no scams, that the costs would outstrip the benefits to them. And so I end up paying the cost in the form of more expensive Thai food. Oh, that's crazy, Corey. Corey Dr. O is our guest today on Central Time. Still time to weigh in, 800-642-1234, as we discuss the ins and outs of Google search, along with that lawsuit that they are battling with the U.S. government. Uh, you and others have argued that Google's monopoly and size are directly connected to the quality of its search engines. And you've written that monopoly drives mediocrity. I'm curious about that phrase. Explain that. Well, well look, I think uh, any of us who are of a certain age can remember Lily Tomlin on Rowan McMahon's uh, laughing saying, uh, we're the phone company. We don't have to care in her fake AT&T ads. <laughs> yes. uh, 
you know, companies are disciplined by three things, right? They are disciplined by the fear that a competitor will take their business. They're disciplined by the fear that a regulator will find them. And especially in the digital world, they're disciplined by the fear that their customers might do something to claw back some value that they've taken away. So, you know, raise the price of a turkey leg at Disney World and all of a sudden you've got to pay security guards to pat people down for sandwiches that they bring in. In the case of Google, that um, uh, self-help looks more like ad blockers and jailbreaking and all the things that we do that make the web better for us, but worse for Google shareholders. Now, when a company reaches a certain scale, uh, it, it no longer really has to worry about your, you taking your business elsewhere, especially if they've got the excess capital to make sure that you never discover another potential search engine. If they're spending $19 billion a year to make sure that no Apple device owner ever accidentally tries a search engine and discovers they like it better. So th they're not really worried about you leaving. They're not really worried about regulators because when companies reach a certain scale, they can just tie their regulators in knots. You know, when IBM uh, finally got brought up on antitrust charges in 1970, they outspent the Department of Justice on lawyers every year for the next 12 consecutive years. They were spending more on lawyers than the U.S. government uh, on, on antitrust. Um, and so when companies reach a certain scale, they can just thumb their nose at, at regulation. Apple very famously um, you know, they kicked Facebook surveillance out of the uh, out of the iPhone. So if you use an iPhone, you tick one box and Facebook can't spy on you. But Apple simultaneously turned on secret spying of its users for the same purpose to target ads uh, and of the same data that that Facebook was gathering. Google has thumbed its nose at more regulations than I've had hot dinners. So it doesn't really have to worry about regulators either. And then finally, you know, because uh, when companies attain a certain scale, regulators can be captured and be brought to bear against people who do things that their shareholders don't like, they can stop you from taking any kind of self-help measures. So, you know, you, you can install an ad blocker on uh, your browser uh, for now, although the, the new version of Chrome is making it harder and harder to do ad and, and privacy blocking. But installing an ad blocker on a phone, uh, getting ad blockers, which is to say privacy blockers on your phone, involves reverse engineering the apps. And because reverse engineering an encrypted app is a violation of an old Clinton era law, the, the Section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the people who give you the tools to, to bypass those digital locks and ad block those apps, they can go to jail for five years and pay a $500,000 fine for a first offense. Now, Jay Freeman calls this felony contempt of business model, mm -hmm. right? That the criminalization of things that would otherwise be lawful and whose major defect is that they make life better for you and worse for the companies that you do business with. And so shorn of any discipline from competition, from regulation, or from uh, their customers themselves taking self-help measures, the company is free to shift value to itself. And one of the ways it can do that is just by lowering quality, just by being worse, because mm -hmm. being good is expensive. It means discipline. It means throwing away things that don't work in order to replace them with things that do. Um, it means constantly reevaluating yourself. It means never becoming complacent. You know, everyone agrees that the one thing that markets can do is whip companies into a froth of productivity. It's not just, you know, Milton Friedman who thought that. The, the first chapter of the Communist Manifesto is just Marx and Engels geeking out on how incredibly productive and creative capitalism can be when sufficiently driven by competition. And so it follows that when you take the competition away, that, that signal virtue dwindles. 
We have about 60 seconds left in our time together. Bottom line, what's going to happen with this case? What's the most likely outcome of the antitrust case in your view? Uh, it's 10 years of litigation, whatever happens, depending, I guess, on the next president. But the, the most important outcome is that it's going to discipline people in Google and outside of Google because no one is going to want to have all of their internal embarrassing memos entered into evidence into court. No one's going to want to have to spend millions of dollars on lawyers. No one's going to want to have every acquisition they're trying to make or key hire that they're trying to attempt in go south because they're mired in ugly litigation. You know, sometimes you got to execute an admiral to encourage the others and, and dragging Google uh, down a gravel road for the next 10 years tied to the bumper of the DOJ is going to make other corporate executives think twice before they pull the same shenanigans. Well, we'll certainly be watching to see what happens, even though it sounds like it's going to take a while. Corey, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Corey Doctorow is science fiction author. He's an activist and journalist who has covered the tech industry for many years. His latest book is The Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation. He talked to us about the Google antitrust case. Coming up tomorrow on Central Time, as inflation rises, so does the cost of the things we love to do the most. Concerts, movies, festivals, and restaurant meals. Well, they all cost more than they used to. Is having fun too expensive these days? Join the discussion tomorrow afternoon. And as discussions on how to remove PFAS from rural and urban water heats up statewide, we'll hear about the latest research on the health implications involved and what's at risk. That's coming up tomorrow here on Central Time. Coming up after the news with Halloween right around the corner, we'll talk to a Wisconsin sociology professor who researches ghost hunters and how they derive meaning from investigating the paranormal. I'm Shereen Seward, in for Rob Ferret. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network.